When I was a kid, there was a popular saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, in a media crisis affecting your organization, we know that nothing could be farther from the truth. Hello and welcome to episode nine of the Resilient Journey podcast sponsored by Clear Risk. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and today's guest is author, media trainer, and crisis communicator, Molly Baker McPherson. Molly's new book, Indestructible, Reclaim Control and Respond with Confidence in a Media Crisis, is a huge hit. Recently, I got to spend some time digging into the details of the book, and I uncovered a nugget of truth you're not going to want to miss about quotable quotes. The interview was taped during the final weekend of the MLB season, and you'll hear us talk about the heated American League East. We'll get into all of that after we hear from my friends at Clear Risk. Navigating changes in the risk landscape can be daunting without access to the right tools. ClearRisk's centralized risk management solution streamlines the process of data collection and analysis, helping customers make impactful decisions and focus on big picture initiatives. ClearRisk provides a highly configurable, easy to use solution that gives our customers the confidence to inform decision-making and proactively optimize risk in their organizations. Effective risk management begins with data you can trust. Learn more at clearrisk.com. Molly, welcome to the podcast. The roles have switched. Uh, You're now the guest on my podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Thanks for doing this. Oh, Grasshopper. It is so (laughs) nice to speak with you on your podcast. (laughs) So you're a media trainer. You're an expert on crisis communications, public relations, and particularly in the age of social media. But, you know, you've lived through this stuff. This isn't just based on some theory you have or some blue sky kind of concepts. This comes from years of experience, doesn't it? Tell us, you know, how did you get here? I got here to your podcast to talk about, you know, this topic, you know, one, by virtue of being a Gen Xer. I'm very wired into the generations and how they respond to events and communication events, crises that happen um, within their organizations. Uh, Older Gen Xers, baby boomers, the OK Boomer crowd, which is a mindset, not an age. Uh, they grew up in a time of traditional learning of chalkboards and pens and pencils, not smart boards, unlike digital natives, the, uh, the millennials, and now the up and coming Gen Z group. I think this plays a big part in how, how we consume media plays a big part in how we react to it, uh, as well. So just by virtue of, you know, my age, I have experience, uh, working for the federal government. I worked for FEMA coming out of the years of Hurricane Katrina. That's where I had very hard scrabble experience of what it feels like to work for an organization that is, you know, under the gun and under the scrutiny from coming out of such a bad uh, crisis. I also worked in the cruise line industry in Washington, D.C., I also have experience working in the media. I've worked in television newsrooms. I worked as a newspaper reporter. I, I feel like I've, I've done it all um, at this point. And in the end, it all led me to this point where I, I like working in, in traditional media forums, but incorporating the impact and the tools and the benefits and the values of digital media, specifically social media. And you know, what's really unique about what you just described is you've, you've been on both sides, right? You've been 
on the FEMA side where reporters are chasing you for a quote, but then you've been on the reporting side where you're the one doing the chasing. And I think that lends a lot of excellent experience for you. And it's culminated, at least to this point, in an excellent book that you just published. I've read it. It's fantastic. I love it. And it's called Indestructible, Reclaim Control and Respond with Confidence in a Media Crisis. Congratulations on it. Uh, I think it's just fantastic. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. And I appreciate your support. I was doing a threat risk assessment recently for a very well-known company in New York City. And we were talking about what are their biggest threats. And what they said was some type of a cancel culture event was one of the things that they worried the most about. Now, you say in the book that cancel culture is so pervasive that the terms now firmly established in online lexicon. So what are some common mistakes that you see when it comes to either not being prepared for or not responding very well to a cancel-worthy incident? I appreciate the firm mentioning to you that they didn't want this risk of being uh, canceled. Uh, when I hear of of leadership, when I hear of communicators identifying that risk and understanding that it's a real risk, that to me is a healthy mindset as it relates to crisis management and you know resilience. It is the mindset of thinking the cancel culture is a a mob of unknown anonymous people online who have an ax to grind and simply want to bring someone down out of spite. I believe in my research and following this is that it is rooted in character. It is rooted in a lack of accountability. It is this lack of accountability that is so pervasive um, with leaders and with cultures that do not want to take responsibility for whatever incident has happened. We're at a very critical point in, I believe, crisis management, emergency management, you know, business resilience is where is the cornerstone where it decides what is a successful way to manage an incident and and what is the unsuccessful way? I find as soon as I see a leader or a position placed by an entity that involves some type of accountability, whether it's in their language, in their in their statement, or in their actions, they are then creating the first steps where they will go on to succeed and get through that crisis. And not only get through it, they'll likely come out even better because they're doing it with a principle of accountability. It's the people who dodge, who blame, who look to point the fingers elsewhere. They are going to continue to struggle and they might lose that crisis and it will stick to them for a long time. If they haven't gotten on board with this already, it's time to be prepared for how they're going to respond to a cancel worthy incident. I mean, cancel culture is not going away anytime soon. It's not. We may come up with new names, but it will always be this idea of someone not accepting someone's choice to not be held accountable. And it's also rooted just in in personal human behavior. I mean, how do we feel when people get away with something? It incites something. It incites this anger. 
for many people, they don't have a problem taking that anger online. And since the generations are starting to get younger, you know, we have now a new generation coming in of Gen Z. These are generations of people who are comfortable, not only using technology, but using technology to share their opinions. So the thought of canceling someone out is going to become more pervasive as time goes on. And don't you find that the the anonymity of being online makes people bolder and more willing to say things that they might not say face to face. I do agree with that. But when I hear people telling me about the anonymity, I, I push back a little because they have this assumption that everyone is anonymous and they're behind um, pen names or, you know, pseudonyms of, of hiding behind some other persona online. That certainly does happen. But for the most part, these, these generations, these people are very willing to put their name and their face and their reputation behind their opinion. And they will put that opinion out there. This is what I work with, with my clients who are in oftentimes are dealing with that digital crisis. And many times they know precisely who's starting it because that person not only is not hiding who they are, they are very proud of who they are and what they are saying and what they want to accomplish. And usually it's that goal for that company or organization to be held accountable for something that they perceive to be some type of injustice. That's really interesting. I'm glad you talked about clients because we've worked together. I've, I've brought you in to uh, provide some media training for a client. And you talk about having this indestructible response. And I know it's a formula. We've talked about this formula, you and I, dozens of times. And, and I love it. It works. It's a very, very good approach to crisis communications. And it's basically three steps and then a bonus step. We'll get to the bonus step in a minute, but explain what you mean by these three steps in your communications formula. The three steps you know, are easy and anyone can identify it. When you identify a successful leader or person or brand who has gotten through a crisis, it's typically they are following these steps. So my indestructible PR response, how I see it is this. Step one is owning it. You have to be accountable for what happened. It's all the A's. It's accountability. It's acceptance. It's acknowledging. It's apologizing. It's admitting. It's perhaps being ashamed if something had happened. Right away out of the gate, if it's a media statement, something that's on Twitter or it's in a television interview, right out the gate, we want to hear that you're accepting responsibility for what happened. The second step is to explain it. It allows you to add the context to what happened. You can explain why it happened, what the circumstances were. You're giving the background to explain how you ended up in that position. The last step, step three, is promise it. We're speaking to the plans now. We're moving forward. What are you going to promise to do? What are the plans that you're going to make to make sure that this doesn't happen again? When they follow those three steps, in that order, that person, brand, entity will be able to move forward, get through that crisis. And as I stated earlier, more likely they will improve their brand coming out of it. Where the mistake is often made that I see happen all the time is the stepping over of step one. When people react to a crisis, when it's very personal, 
when they're winging it, even they start with step two and they just start to explain what happened. Well, this is the reason why. And when you start with two, more likely people are going to blame or dodge. They're not going to take accountability when you're explaining why something happened. So you're creating this narrative that you're trying to dodge the crisis and it never works. Follow the three steps and you will get through it. It's, it happens time and time again, and it's successful when people do it. And when they muddle up the order, they muddle up their reputation in turn. We're on Zoom, but we're not on camera and you can't see me. I'm smiling like ear to ear because you answered a follow-up question you know, w- without me having to ask it. And, and I was going to talk to you about adding context and, and how people tend to do that first. Now, if an organization does those three steps properly and in the right order, there's a benefit to them. Can you explain a little bit about what that is? What what does anyone want to do when they compete? They want to win. Sadly, as a Red Sox fan, sadly for you as a Blue Jays fan, Mm. we're not winning it right now. Mm. Um, But if you follow the steps and you, you own it, you explain it, and then you make the promises and the plans you will, in the bonus, you'll win it, whether it's winning someone over, whether it's just getting through that crisis. In many cases, you see, if you want to look for examples, look for the big agencies, look for the categories like the transportation agency. I mean, they have this nailed down, whether it's the airlines, the cruise lines, um, railway. Of, as, a, as an example, a few weeks ago, there was an Amtrak derailment in Montana. If you looked at their response online, they followed those steps and orders. Um, one, two, three, they owned exactly what happened. They put in context what they knew at the time that it happened. And then they talked about the plans going forward, how they're working with the NTSB and moving out of it. That was a big story, a derailment. Two people were killed. Many people were injured. It was a big two-day story. But now, weeks later, we don't hear about it because of that formula. It's quick. It answers the people's questions and people can move on. You had to go there, didn't you? Talk about baseball. And, you know, next week's guest is Brad Phillips, and he's a huge Yankees fan. And I, I, let's move on. Let's, that's I'm sorry for that. that. Oh, move on for the Yankees or just move on from baseball? I can't move on from baseball yet. I'm not willing to give up the ghost. There's still all right. time. All right. Yeah, me either. For all of us, isn't it? Keep hope alive. And there's always next year. I mean, that's two, two of my favorite quotes. Uh, I, I want to go back to step one that we were just talking about here and uh, in the own it. And people ask me a lot if apologizing is a good idea or not in an official statement. And I think people confuse an apology with an admission of guilt. Can you talk to us about how to apologize without creating more of a liability and, and also maybe how not to apologize? Mark, that's a great way to discuss it, that people are concerned about apologizing because they immediately tether it to some implication of guilt that's going to impact them um, in the legal realm. I mean, of course, in any statement, you're going, especially a statement where there was some type of incident where there might be injury or, you know, some type of court case or criminal case there, uh, you'll want to get that legal vetting. Uh, But in terms of apologizing for something, it's not the act of saying, I'm sorry, and taking the blame for something where it gets confusing. Apologizing for something is 
the act of understanding the responsibility. It's taking responsibility for something. I acknowledge that this happened and this is the role in it. So it's true that you don't see the word apologies in there, but certainly when we're talking about leadership, when you see a statement from a CEO, you know, at the top, maybe the CEO did something and they need to apologize for it. Then you want to hear that type of apology. It, if, it, if it is crystal clear that they've done something wrong and perhaps there aren't, you know, legal implications there. If you, there's not going to be a problem saying the word apologize, you should be saying it because people are expecting it. Without the word, it appears they are dodging. And dodging is just another way of getting out of a crisis. And that is not taking accountability. And when that happens, start looking for the cancel squad to come and make sure you're held accountable. I think you would also want to avoid the old, I'm sorry if Oh, Mark. What? Yeah, I mentioned that in the book as well. When you are, yeah, when you have to, um, when you have to couch a statement by excluding it in a way where you don't want to have full responsibility, how often have people seen? I'm I I'm sorry if I offended that group of people. I'm a sorry if these people didn't um, take understand that it was a joke. That is the quickest way for a person to be called out publicly, especially by younger generations who do not tolerate that type of parsing of the language. It should never, ever be in any statement, especially an official one. I mentioned in the intro to this episode that I had a nugget buried deep in here. And this is a question, Molly, I've been wanting to ask you, I don't know, since your book came out and I read this chapter. There's a single paragraph. It jumped out at me. And like I said, I've been dying to ask you this. In your 10 tips for keeping your brand intact, tip five is this, create your quotable quote. So Molly, what is a quotable quote and what makes a quote great? That lead up got me nervous as you were bringing me down. I thought, what nugget did I say that, that made such an impact with Mark Hoffman? A quotable quote. Well, right there, how you packaged it and how you were framing a piece of information, people needed to listen to it. People are saying, well, what is it? Even I did that. And it was my quote. You had me hanging to find out what it was. A quoted, a quotable quote is something that answers the question, that solves the problem, that creates a narrative that the answer or whatever you're trying to convey comes out. In the digital age, a quotable quote is something that can be condensed within a social media post. It's easier on a Facebook post. It's easier on Instagram, but that's not where news is shaped on those platforms. A crisis will come up certainly there, but where news is shaped is on Twitter. Twitter, that's where the journalists reside. That's where many of the stakeholders that organizations are trying to communicate to, that's where they reside. These quotable quotes, if you can get a quote that is within that 280 mark, that a person can retweet, a reporter can retweet, a reporter can easily grab it and put it into their story, or a quote that captures the eye of a journalist to say, that is a person who I want to speak to, this is a story that's here, then that becomes a quotable quote. It's a quote that sticks. 
So can you give me an example of a positive quotable quote? I mean, I can think of several negative quotable quotes. Um, I want my life back. Um, you know, I did not have sex with that woman. But can you give me some examples of positive quotable quotes that come to mind? It's so much easier to do the negative ones, isn't it? It is. It depends on what is, is, right? Like all the quotable quotes. Ah. It's ironic. I did a podcast um, episode about quotable quotes, and I had used Governor Cuomo, former governor, New York Governor Cuomo, as an example in his press conferences because he was putting out quote after quote after quote. He was speaking in quotable quotes. He was speaking to be quoted. He was speaking to be tweeted. And everything that he said worked. And that's why his profile was rising so quickly. And he was known to be someone who was handling this because he had the courage to get out and do these daily press briefings, you know, during the initial weeks of the COVID response. Now, of course, we've come to learn <laughs> what has happened. I mean, he was certainly covering for a lot of misdeeds that were going on behind the scenes. But certainly uh, he he was an example at the time for knowing how to place a quote at the right time. So he he did all the right things. He said all the right things. He just wasn't telling the truth. And that's a big part of the problem. I, I know we're going back with some of these examples really far, but, you know, tear down this wall. You, you hear the quotes and you're like, yeah, OK, I know who said it. And, I, and, you know, it's very quotable that way. Was it Ronald Reagan who said that? Tear down this wall. That's that's who it was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so speak to a risk or resilience professional who might be responsible for working on a crisis management plan or maybe working on a crisis communications plan and talk to them about the importance of making sure they're going digital. Risk and resilience professionals, you know, the people who are in the business of making their organizations ready for anything, it is understood that no one can be ready for any type of crisis that that pops up online. I always say, you know, your next crisis is going to be a digital crisis. It may not originate online, but it will certainly bleed there. And that's where you're going to have to manage it. We often hear the term in our business, Mark, you know, these black swan events. The term is somewhat antiquated now because almost every crisis is a black swan event. You cannot prepare for them because they happen instantaneously um, on social media or they go viral on social media. It's like we're looking for the white swan events that are happening there. I think it's important to, of course, have your plans in place. You're going to have your, your, you know, your incident command plans in place. You know, how are you responding? Your crisis plans, you're going to have those in place. But the, what the plan that you need is for responding to this digital crisis is having that mindset plan in place. Does your CEO, does your president, does your leader, do they already have buy-in that they need to put themselves out front? during a crisis, that digital media and social media is a critical part of any crisis response plan. Are they comfortable putting themselves out there, putting a statement online, writing a statement that is going to be posted to the website with a link to their bio, with a photo of that person? Is the board, if there's a board of directors, 
are do they have Biden buy-in that the communication staff, the, the 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 risk and resilience professionals, do they have the resources that they need to be able to combat and manage any crisis that happens online? So often, many organizations still in 2021 heading into 2022, they are not prepared for most of these incidents that come up because simply their their staffs, their departments aren't prepared to handle what is happening online. Maybe it's not the technology isn't there. Maybe the staffing isn't there. So really, Mark, I think it's all about the mindset and understanding that digital media is just as powerful as traditional, whether it's a newspaper, whether it's a cable news network. Social media is where things are made and where reputations are destroyed. So it's important that the focus is there and that the resources are there too. Excellent. Now, look, I'm going to get you out of here on this, but I got to say something first. So we've been using some sports analogies today, and, and there's there's kind of a sports analogy that says that a certain player makes everyone around them better. And, you know, that's generally said about, you know, the star players and so forth. And Molly, that's how I feel about you. Every time that I either read something by you or listen to your podcast or bring you in to help with clients, I know that I'm getting better and my clients are getting better. And so I just want to thank you for that and recommend to the listeners, look, you need some help when it comes to media training, crisis communications training, you know, Molly's right there at the top of the list. So with that as the backdrop, Molly, how can people get in touch with you? I want to be like at the top of the AL standings, Mark. Thank you very much for placing me there. Even though your Blue Jays are not there, I appreciate that you are putting me there and hopefully the Red Sox will be there. Anyone can find me online, but you know where I would love to see people uh, is on Twitter because that's where the conversations are happening. Mark, I believe that's where you and I first met. So thank you for your accolades, but I share them right back at you. I enjoy working with you because of your mindset and how you approach communication, resiliency, and and just crisis management. It's getting through it and, and being accountable for things. And if you are, you only get better. So working with you, I share the same. So thank you. And thank you very much. We're going to put links to uh, your website and to your podcast and things like that in the show notes. And again, I just encourage everybody to uh, to check out Molly McPherson. Molly, thanks for doing this. I feel like we could have talked another hour, um, but thank you so much for being a guest on The Resilient Journey. I appreciate you being here. Mark, it was my pleasure. And please play me out with that cool jazz music. All right, Molly, here's that cool jazz you requested. Thanks to Molly Baker McPherson for her incredible wisdom related to crisis communications. Despite her taste in baseball teams, Molly is top-notch. A huge thanks as always to the sponsor of The Resilient Journey, Clear Risk. We continue our series on crisis communications next week when my guest is Mr. Media Training himself, Brad Phillips. Brad is the CEO of The Throughline Group in New York City. Listen as Brad tells us about how to prepare your company spokesperson for a critical media interview. You won't want to miss it, so join us next time, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.